Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with senior historian and interpretive planner Scott Virick with History Associates Incorporated. We'll talk with Scott about the Falling Waters battlefield and how History Associates and Preservation Maryland worked to conduct an interpretive reconnaissance survey and the impact it had on plans for the battlefield and how all that and more can impact work in your own community as you look to interpret historic sites. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and we're really looking forward to today's conversation where we'll be talking with senior historian and interpretive planner Scott Virick, who is with History Associates Incorporated, HAI. We've had Scott on previously to talk about sort of careers and in um, corporate history and, and how people can make a living working um, as sort of a historian for hire. Um, but today we're going to be talking with Scott about a project that we actually worked on in partnership and um, uh, what implications there might be for people listening all across the country who are trying to interpret a landscape. In this case, um, they uh, we were working to interpret and, and look at what interpretive potential there was for uh, a battlefield in Maryland called the Falling Waters Battlefield. Um, and But before we jump in there, as a reminder for people who didn't hear your previous episode, Scott, what is your, your background and, and how did you get into this line of work? What was your uh, first job in the field? That kind of story. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be back on the podcast. So my journey into the public history field really begins with an internship I did at Harpers Ferry National Historical Park way back in 2014. At the time, I was majoring in history and government at William & Mary, but didn't really think that history was a career you could have outside of academia. And so having that opportunity to work for the Park Service really opened my eyes to some of the possibilities of a career in history, in public history. And after graduation, I got a couple of part-time jobs in the field. I was a seasonal ranger at Harpers Ferry. I gave tours at Mount Vernon. I was an educator at the White House Historical Association. And then after about a year of doing that, I was hired as a research historian at History Associates. And as they say, the rest is history from there. I like that. Do you use that line a lot, Scott? I do quite a bit. <laughs> okay, good, good. Hopefully it's on your business cards. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, for those of you listening, perhaps who aren't aware, and there's probably a lot of people, um, let's set the context for the project that we worked on together. And then we'll kind of talk about how the nuts and bolts of this kind of work and, you know, other places where you've done this and, and how people approaching this can think about it. But let's talk about the Falling Waters battlefield. So, um, this is not Frank Lloyd Wright's home, um, just to be, to be clear, different falling waters. Um, but talk to us about where the battlefield is located, give people sort of a sense for the context of this battle, and then we'll talk about the project itself. Sure, absolutely. So the battle is located near the, uh, city of Williamsport, Maryland, which is different from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, home of the Little League World Series. 
Uh, that was a question I got quite a bit during this project. Mm -hmm. It is on the Potomac River. It is on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, uh, which is a National Park Service unit that goes all the way from Georgetown, passes by Harpers Ferry, goes through Williamsport, and then makes its way to terminate up in Cumberland, Maryland. So it's right along the Potomac River, which is a key point in the story of the battlefield, in the story of why there was fighting that happened there. And the story of how the Union and Confederate armies came to clash at Falling Waters really goes back to the Battle of Gettysburg. So summer of 1863, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia invade the North. Lee is hoping that a major victory on Union soil, United States soil, uh, will cause the Northern public to stop supporting the war, it, that it would force the Lincoln administration to come to the negotiating table. So he invades the North. After three days of bloody fighting at Gettysburg, the Confederates are repulsed. The attack, Pickett's charge, is beaten back. The Union line holds, and Union wins the battle. And for many, that's kind of where the story of the Battle of Gettysburg ends. Uh, for anybody who's seen the movie Gettysburg, there's that iconic final scene of the Chamberlain brothers embracing as the sun sets. The United States flag waving, battered, but still flying in the distance. The music swells. Uh, it's a great way to end a movie. It's a great way to end a lot of books about the battle, given there's so much to cover about the battle. But of course, the Civil War goes on for almost another two years. So William, uh, the Battle of Falling Waters is kind of the story of what happens next, because Robert E. Lee has been defeated in deep in enemy territory. He needs to get his army back home and the Union Army is going to try and stop him. They're going to try and chase after him. So over the next couple of days, he's going to get his army out of Gettysburg. They're going to retreat through Pennsylvania and Maryland to try and get to the Potomac River, get across the Potomac River and back into what the Confederates consider to be Virginia, but what has recently been declared West Virginia by the United States government. So the army reaches the Williamsport area around July 8th, or 8th and 9th. Uh, the units are coming in, and Lee realizes he's got a problem. The pontoon bridge that spans the river has been destroyed by United States cavalry, and due to all the rainfall, the Potomac River the water levels have risen, the banks have swelled. Lee realizes he needs to rebuild that pontoon bridge uh, in order to get across the river. And if he can't rebuild it before the Union Army arrives in force, he could potentially be trapped along the banks of the Potomac, and then the army could be destroyed. So he digs in, the Confederates build fortifications, the Union Army arrives, Meade sends out skirmishers, scouts to try and probe the Confederate defenses. His uh, commanders are going to argue that the Confederate defenses are pretty strong. A full-blown attack is probably not wise. Ultimately, the pontoon bridge is built. The Confederate army starts retreating across it. But on July 14th, General Harry Heath, sorry, General Henry Heath of the Confederate army, he and his men are acting as a rear guard. Union cavalry attacked them at Falling Waters. During the course of the battle, General James C. Pettigrew of the Confederate Army is killed. And then the Union forces take around 500 prisoners. That all being said, the fighting allows Lee's army to get across the, the rest of Lee's army to get across the river. 
which means that the civil war is going to continue, that the bloody fighting is going to continue onwards. So many historians consider, not all of them, but many consider that the Battle of Falling Waters is the end of the Gettysburg Campaign. So that process that started earlier in the summer with the Confederate Army invading the North comes to an end here, and then we move on to the next phase of the war. So we're going to talk about sort of the project itself and the, the interpretive reconnaissance and kind of identifying opportunities for interpretation. But given what you just described, um, and I mean, you know, you said sort of there's so much to cover when you talk about Gettysburg. So oftentimes it just sort of ends at, at the end of day three. But this is pretty important. Any sense for why it's so missing from the historiography? Sure. Yeah. I mean, part of that is, as you say, it's overshadowed by Gettysburg. It's overshadowed by the bloodiest battle in the American Civil War. Uh, that's not to say that the retreat isn't covered. But if it is covered, it's a more general couple paragraphs at the end of the book talking about the armies leaving. If it is talked about, it's the debate about whether Lee could have, uh, sorry, whether George Gordon Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, could have crushed Lee during the retreat. Um, a lot of historians debate that back and forth. We could do a whole podcast about that. And so that's how it's talked about is in kind of the context of the retreat, but not the battle itself. Um, and again, I think it's it's overshadowed by Gettysburg. It's overshadowed by the battles that come after it. And I think it just gets overlooked in comparison to these much larger battles that happen as part of the Eastern theater of the war. They kind of take up all the oxygen. They take up all the air, uh, which is the case with a lot of a lot of the smaller battles in the Civil War. They kind of get overlooked in favor of these larger these larger fights. So I would say that's probably it. It just, you know, compared with the numbers, the casualties of some of these other big battles, it doesn't quite have that. Um, from a storytelling standpoint, it isn't quite as poetic, so to speak, as some of the other battles. I mean, Gettysburg, again, you've got Pickett's Charge, the mythology around that. You've got the Union line holding. Battle of Antietam, you have the two armies fighting each other, bloodiest single day of the war. Um, and then from there, you get the Emancipation Proclamation. Falling Waters is very much the two armies trying to figure each other out. And you have a battle that's, in a lot of ways, inconclusive. You get the Union Army walking away with more prisoners, you but you get the Confederates retreating across the river. So it's, again, from a storytelling standpoint, it might not initially seem as engaging as some of these other battles. But the people who've worked to preserve the battlefield, the people who are working to tell that story, would disagree. And that was one of the goals of this plan was to talk about was to come up with recommendations about why people should care, why the story is meaningful, why it's relevant, and why people should visit, why they should learn more about it, and why they should take that information with them as they go about their lives. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, talking about preservation, that's a piece of it, too, is that if there's not land preserved and there wasn't for a long time, um, it's hard to kind of tell the story because people can't stop. They can't see it. I mean, Gettysburg, Antietam, these places that you mentioned have entire sort of tourism industries built around them to go and see and roads and signs and um, monuments and all those sorts of things. And a lot of that for a long time was missing here. So um, and if, if any if Gettysburg aficionados know anything, they probably know about um, Meade's uh, sort of infamous statement that he had driven the enemy from um, American soil. 
Um, and that was sort of the statement after um, that was the the silver lining, I guess, of uh, Falling Waters is that they were they were dri driven from Maryland, but to which um, Lincoln apocryphally uh, responds that it's it's all of our soil. So there's there's sort of a uh, uh, a, a misstatement there, I guess, by Meade, um, who, you know, understandably had probably hadn't had any sleep for the past uh you know, 14 days. So probably not the most eloquent moment. Um, but let's take a step back. So th that's the story here. Tell people a little bit about um, what it was we worked to do with the support of the American Battlefield Protection Program. And what exactly is an interpretive reconnaissance survey? It sounds very, very fancy. What what was it that you were hired to do? And, and taking falling waters out of it for a moment, what does that generally mean? Sure, absolutely. So an interpretive reconnaissance survey is a form of interpretive planning. And interpretive planning, you can look up a lot of formal definitions out there, but the way I always describe it is it's the process of looking at a site. It can be a historic site, a historic house, a museum, or you know any place where you've got resources, you have a story. It's looking at those resources, looking at those stories, figuring out what the needs of the site are, figuring out what the needs of the people operating the site, running the site are, figuring out what the needs of partners, stakeholders, community members are. And then given all that information, synthesizing that and figuring out what are the ways to connect those resources and stories to visitors in a way that connects them to the site, connects them to the stories, and allows them to find meaning in what they're interacting with. So it's very much a process. It's individualized. No two sites are quite like the other. Um, it's very much built upon dialogue, consensus, and it's an ongoing process. So every interpretive planning process we do, there's the understanding that seven years, 10 years, 20 years, uh, hopefully not 20 years, hopefully before that, that the plans will be revised and that people will uh, update them as conditions change. So an interpretive reconnaissance survey, it's a little bit different than a full interpretive plan in that it's very much focused on one, taking work that's already been done. So situations where you'd, you've already done a lot of community engagement, you've already done a lot of research, taking that work that's already been completed and then marrying that with stakeholder conversations and using that to come up with a concrete set of strategies that site administrators and partners can use to increase engagement with the site. So it's very much a process that utilizes work that's already been done uh, in a way that allows us to come up with recommendations that gives site administrators tools to work with as they move forward um, in less time than you might have in creating a full-on interpretive plan. So for Falling Waters, um, give people a sense, sort of, you know, give an example of this sort of in practice. Um, what were some, like, recommendations that kind of came out of this report um, in terms of the potential for interpretation? What was some, some things that they found there that people might see in other kinds of reports like this? Sure, so absolutely. So one of the things that came across loud and clear was that the actual preserved land at Falling Waters Battlefield, it's relatively small. I mean, you look at places like Gettysburg and Antietam, they're massive. You can go along the entire Union defensive line at Gettysburg 
Falling water, as of now, you only have a couple a couple of acres. You can still have meaningful experiences there, um, but it's not going to be a place that people spend an entire day at. That, in a lot of ways, is an opportunity because, again, Falling Waters is a part of this larger story of the retreat of the Army of Northern Virginia and the pursuit by the Army of the Potomac. So that's an opportunity for us to say, hey, we've got this site here. We've got a number of other different sites nearby. Let's find ways to link them together. That's going to benefit not only the battlefield, it's going to benefit these other sites nearby, and it's going to benefit the visitor. It's going to give them more options for how to engage with that history. It's going to give them more things to do, and it's going to give them a better sense of how that his, uh, that history progressed as that campaign progressed. So that was something that was really clear uh, to us was needing to link the battlefield with the other sites associated with the retreat. There was also a discussion of, well, given the couple of acres that we do have preserved, what's the future look like there? And not every battlefield is going to be a Gettysburg. Not every battlefield is going to be an Antietam. But there are a lot of really exciting and really well done smaller battlefields where they haven't preserved the entire battlefield. Land's been lost to development. Land has been lost to other reasons. So we were able to look at some of these other smaller battlefields and come up with a plan for falling waters that involves creating a short interpretive trail with strategically placed interpretive waysides that allows visitors to learn about the battlefield, learn about where they're standing in relation to all the fighting, and get that story even though they can't walk over the entire battlefield. And also, given the fact that there's the nearby town of Williamsport, there's a lot of private landowners nearby, the goal was also to make sure that this was something that could be a community resource. Uh, the wonderful thing about so many historic sites that have substantial outdoor components is that you can go for the history, but you can also go to walk your dog. You can go to get some exercise. You can go to get outside. That's the beautiful thing about them is they can serve a lot of different needs. And making sure that Falling Water is not just a place for visitors, but also that it's a place for locals, for community members, that was really a goal there as well. And we found that a short interpretive trail with waysides and benches, parking spaces, that was a way to go about making that happen. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of value in here because I think a lot of people think like, oh, interpretive reconnaissance, it's for some massive site or, you know, battlefield planning is for Gettysburg or Antietam or, you know, Shiloh or something like that. But people may have a site of value like this in their community that is relatively small. And a project like this gives you an example that not everything need be, um, a, you know, a 7,000 acre um, massive study that there's value in figuring out how to interpret three acres at a time as well. And that, and that's a project like this. Was there anything in the project that surprised you um, in, in this one? Sure. Um, one of the things that really surprised me was just the sheer variety of other sites nearby connected to the retreat. Uh, and that was something that we really found out as we were doing uh, the site visit. So the survey did include us going out, checking out the battlefield, checking out the nearby sites. And we knew that the CNO Canal was there, obviously. We knew that there were interpretive waysides about the campaign on the canal. Uh, but just finding out that 
there was a whole trail uh, by Civil War trails that kind of charted that retreat in pursuit, that there was a small battlefield in Pennsylvania, kind of in between Falling Waters and Gettysburg, uh, that documented and preserved one of the clashes between the two armies during that retreat and pursuit. That was really surprising to me. Um, there was also, I won't say this was surprising, but reading a previous study that had been done by Preservation Maryland uh, noted just how many people in the area didn't even know that a battle occurred around there. Right. Um, and again, that wasn't surprising to me uh, just because that's something you see at a lot of sites where you have history that's there, that's meaningful and relevant, um, but people just don't know about it. Uh, we work with at History Associates, we work with a, n- a number of sites where their goal is right now they're known as hidden treasures and they don't want to be so hidden anymore. And so seeing that that there was a lot of kind of just not a lot of awareness about the battle and its history, um, you know, that's not uncommon, but it was it was interesting to see in this context. Yeah, definitely. And I think um you know, that's something that people are, are familiar with all across the country is sort of these hidden gems. And uh, this is something that can be done. If people are looking to do an interpretive reconnaissance survey, is there things that they should be asking of potential, you know, vendors? I mean, obviously, you're one, but um, what should they be looking for in sort of, you know, if they put an RFP out, what kind of experience should they be looking for? Sure, absolutely. So they should be looking for uh, an organization that has an understanding of the history They should be looking at an organization that has an understanding of the planning process. They should also be looking for an organization that has an understanding of the outreach and the conversations required in order to create a valuable plan. When it comes to interpretive planning, uh, the sites we work with, I always say, we come in, we have the expertise about how to create the plan, what components go into the plan, but we're not experts on the site. We're not the ones who interact with the site daily. We're not the ones having conversations with visitors every single day. That's why our approach is very collaborative. uh, collaborative. It's very much focused on having conversations with site staff. It's having conversations with stakeholders, like what we did with this interpretive reconnaissance survey, Um, talking about the people who are invested in the story, who are on the ground doing the work, and getting a sense of what the realities are there. So I can visit a site, I can walk around, I can get a lot of good information that way. But if I'm not talking to people, then the plan I create isn't going to be of much value. And oftentimes having these conversations, it makes my job easier because so many times the recommendations that go into a plan, they come from these conversations. They come from people who are invested in the site. They've thought about what the site needs. So if you're looking to put out an RFP, definitely have one of the bullet points be conversations with staff, conversations with stakeholders. Depending on the needs of the site, you can also look into doing public surveys or public meetings as well. Ultimately, we didn't need to do this for Falling Waters because so much of that work had already been done. But definitely, you want to hire someone who's got that uh, that partnership mindset. You don't want to have somebody who goes, yep, I'll do a site visit, and then you'll have your plan in a couple of weeks. That's that's right. not going to give you a useful plan. That's going to give you potentially a nice-looking document, but ultimately one that's just going to sit on a shelf somewhere. 
So speaking of uh, documents and things that you're working on, I'm curious. Uh, people love to know what what people are up to. Um, this project's done now. What are you working on right now? Is there anything that isn't top secret that you can share? Sure, absolutely. So we're doing a couple of projects, uh, one of which is actually uh, we're helping the National Park Service on a new interpretive plan for appropriately the Gettysburg battlefield. So I've gone from, you know, a very small battle, small but still significant battle at the end of the Gettysburg campaign to to that big battle, why it's called the Gettysburg campaign. So it's been fascinating just seeing the similarities and the differences between these two sites. Obviously, in a lot of ways, they are very different. But in other ways, you know, there are still similarities there uh, in terms of some of the recommendations, some of the needs. Um, so it's been fascinating just seeing how the pro- these two projects have unfolded. Another one I'm doing for the Park Service is helping them out with an interpretive plan for Katmai National Park and Preserve up in Alaska. Hmm which very, very different than uh, Williamsport. Uh, Very, very different from Williamsport, Maryland, obviously. But again, the goal is still the same. What are sites, resources? What are its stories? What are the best ways to connect visitors to those resources and stories? And uh, Katmai National Park, for anybody who follows Fat Bear Week, that is where Fat Bear Week occurs. Yeah, that's, 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 that's hard to outdo Fat Bear Week. We'll have to see what you come up with. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're still I can't really talk too much about the recommendations for that. We're still in conversations with the park, Uh, but it's just it's been a fascinating site to work at. Um, You know, the bears, the bears are iconic, uh, but they're not the only story. Uh, You've got this incredible volcanic eruption that happened in the 20th century. You have thousands of years of human history of people who survived and thrived in. thrived in Alaska, you know, dealing with um, everything that life in Alaska entails in terms of the winters, the transportation challenges. So it's it's just been a really fascinating uh, process that I've been, I'm, I'm very grateful that I got to be a part of that. So that's uh, what's happening. And uh, as we're having this conversation, I'm also gearing up to go up to uh, my hometown of Philadelphia for a week to do research for a project we're doing with the historic tavern up in New Jersey. So definitely keeping busy since, uh, since we wrapped up falling waters. Definitely. And, you know, we, we asked people their favorite historic site. We've already done that for you. So how about this? What's the coolest one you've been to recently? All right. So I'm going to, ch- I'm going to cheat a little bit here. Uh, it is another work site that I'm working with. Uh, this one is Sagamore Hill up in uh, Long Island. And that is the home of uh, former president Theodore Roosevelt. And that is just a really compelling site in the way you walk around it, the way you walk through the building, and you just get a really good sense of who the Roosevelts were as people. When Theodore Roosevelt died, his widow more or less said, all right, nobody is touching anything in this house. So you go on a house tour, and a lot of the objects and artifacts you're seeing, not only are they original, but they're more or less where they would have been in Roosevelt's time. There's no guesswork about where some of these uh, objects would have been, which is really cool. And you just go through the site and the Rangers do an incredible job talking about what it was like to live there for the Roosevelts, what it was like for the paid employees they had on site. And it's just a really fascinating glimpse into the private life of this man who seemingly just never ran out of energy, was always looking for the next thing, always looking for that next adventure. 
So that's been another really cool project that I've gotten to work on. Um, and again, just it's it's always interesting just seeing the similarities and the differences between sites like that and the other sites I work with. Well, that hard hard to beat uh, the Roosevelts and Sagamore Hill. What a great uh, way to end the conversation. Um, Scott, it's always fun to talk with you. I think this is really informative for people all across the country who are listening and are maybe thinking about interpreting a site or a resource and kind of just want to know where to start. And this is a great place to do that and a good conversation to listen to um, for people thinking about that. So thanks for, so much for joining us today uh, and uh, look forward to talking with you and uh, folks with uh, HAI again in the future. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, Nick. Um, and actually, sorry, before you go, we should probably just give a shout out to the great folks at the Falling Waters Battlefield Association. You know, we've had the talk and we haven't mentioned them once, and they've been doing a lot of really incredible work preserving the battlefield and educating the public about it. So just want to make sure they get a shout out. Well, I think that that's a, a fantastic way to end it. Appreciate the reminder. And uh, we will talk with you again soon. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, Nick. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.